This is an ABC podcast. G'day from Gadigal Land. I'm David Lipson. This week, what's the point of the Indigenous voice to Parliament? The federal government's promised a referendum on it next year, but after years of consultation and discussion, Australians are still confused. Also, is President Xi Jinping losing his grip on China? But first... It's hard to imagine a more serious and explosive allegation. A Liberal staffer accused of raping a drunk colleague inside the Defence Industry Minister's office in Parliament House. It was a Friday after work drinking session attended by several government staff members. A lot of alcohol was consumed and Brittany Higgins says it led to an incident she'll never forget. Brittany Higgins, the accuser, became a household name. Her case sparked a movement for victims of sexual assault all over the country. Bruce Lehrman always denied any sexual assault took place. Now, after almost two years of immeasurable stress and trauma and a trial abandoned at the 11th hour... In a day of real drama in a Canberra courtroom, the rogue juror forced the rape trial of Bruce Lehrman to be aborted the worst outcome imaginable has been delivered. There will be no retrial, even though the Director of Public Prosecutions believed there was a reasonable prospect of conviction. He feared another trial would simply be too traumatic for Brittany Higgins. In light of the compelling independent medical opinion and balancing all factors, I've made the difficult decision that it is no longer in the public interest to pursue a prosecution at the risk of a complainant's life. On the one hand, Brittany Higgins never gets the opportunity for justice. On the other, Bruce Lehrman never gets the opportunity to clear his name. And victims of sexual assault everywhere may well feel less confident than ever they can take on their attacker and win. Anastasia Powell is an associate professor in criminology at RMIT. The reality is it's very difficult to pursue these cases through our criminal justice system. Um, We know that sexual assault more broadly in Australia is is relatively common. Our our national statistics show us that one in five women and, and one in 20 men have experienced it at some point since the age of 15. Uh, But we also know that the vast majority never report to police. And even those that do report to police, very few go through to trial. And so the research in this suggests that it's between 6 or 7% of sexual assaults that actually result in a guilty conviction. Um, And there's lots and lots of reasons why these cases are so difficult to pursue through the criminal justice system, of course, as well. Mm. For the cases that do get to trial... The accuser invariably comes under immense heat. The the burden of proof is something Brittany Higgins spoke about when the last trial fell apart. My life has been publicly scrutinised, open for the world to see. So how common is it in other trials, other sexual abuse trials, that an alleged victim or survivor feels like they are the one on trial? Well, of course, it's a, it's a cornerstone of our legal system that a person is innocent until proven guilty beyond a reasonable doubt. We know that. But it is also factually true that it's it's really difficult to go through these sexual assault 
cases, right from investigation through to cross-examination at court, you know, it's been described as uh, a second sexual assault by by many victim survivors and advocates working in this space. And that is because the complainant, the the person raising the complaint of sexual assault, is often uh, faced with intense scrutiny and questioning about every aspect of their life and character that, you know, that led up to the assault, um, let alone the circumstances in which it actually happened. And often these questions about what were they doing at the time? Were they drunk? Did they pass out? What were they wearing? Did they did they smile or act friendly towards the alleged perpetrator earlier in, in the night? Or why were they even at a particular place or a particular time? And I think it really takes attention away from um, the the sort of the facts around the actual incident of uh, alleged sexual harm that's occurred, uh, and instead it sort of focuses on the character of the complainant. Mm, well, in this case, there was a retrial that w- that was planned. It's been abandoned because of the trauma that Brittany Higgins would have to go through. In a, in a second running of the trial, more broadly, how difficult, how complicated are these retrials for everyone involved? Look, it's it's incredibly disheartening. I think for any any person who has reported uh, an experience of sexual assault, who has made that decision to put themselves under that public scrutiny, it is a very public scrutiny in a courtroom environment, let alone that there may be broader media reporting and public conversations that are sort of furthering that scrutiny, that questioning, um, even sort of character attacks against the complainant. So, you know, to go th- to have to face and go through that a second time for a retrial, I, I think it's very understandable that for some people, uh, the idea of doing that could be just too difficult to pursue. And and we do know that one of the reasons why there are such low conviction rates for sexual assault is because for some uh, complainants, they can't proceed. They, they are too traumatised. They do find it too difficult to go through that process. And often they withdraw cases even before they get to a first trial, let alone the idea of having to go through it all again. Mm, indeed. So how do we do it better? I mean, are there other countries that are more successful in, in running these very difficult trials? Well, there's no doubt many pieces to this puzzle, but there are a few things that could be relevant, I think, reflecting on on how we might move forward from this case. Um, I mean, one suggestion is to allow video recorded evidence um, of a first trial that could then be used in a subsequent trial if that was needed. Uh, I think that's a great idea. It could go further than that. I know uh, England and Wales have recently brought in the use of pre-recorded video evidence as an Mm. option for every sexual assault trial. Right. How how would Um, that work for cross-examinations or if there's a new lawyer that wants to run the case a different way? Yeah, so there there is um, there is provision to to have those pre recorded cross examinations. So they're instead of taking place live in a public. Uh, courtroom, um, doing that privately via video evidence. There may be things to work out in terms of, you know, can further questions be put down the track if there was a new trial? Um, but I think that's part of working through those proposals is to come up with the, the the solutions around that to make sure that process is fair. I mean, I think there are some other things we could also be looking at and, um, you know, certainly judge-only trials for sexual offences um, have been raised as a proposal by some advocacy groups here in Australia and it's under 
consideration in Scotland currently. So we could look at, you know, are juries the right body to be making decisions in some of these cases where the law can be incredibly complex? And and we know that many sexual assault trials have either been mistrials or, or had appeals lodged on the basis that the communication of the law between the judges and the juries was just so difficult you know, for juries to sort of really understand and uh, and not bring their own sort of pre-assumptions and bias into a case mm. uh, like this. And the media coverage in these very high-profile cases adds another dimension to all of that and, and perhaps, you know, builds the case for, for judge-only trials in, in cases like this. I mean, it's difficult to imagine how juries would not be in some way bringing their, you know, things they've heard about a sexual assault case into their decision making. And so I think that is certainly in in very high profile cases, I think there's a very strong case to be made for judge only trials or for a panel of judges rather than jury trials. I mean, I think the other part to this that's worth mentioning is that uh, the public conversations we have and the media reporting is part of that, but but the broader public conversation around sexual assault is also really important. And we know that media can be a great educative tool and it can bring injustices to light and it can raise awareness, but we also know that poor reporting can exaggerate the sort of the myths and stereotypes about sexual assault and, and can add to character assassinations um, of the people involved. And so I think there's a real need for, you know, making sure those public conversations about sexual assault remain trauma-informed, that they're done with care and respect. And there's some great information available from our watch, from Australia's National Organisation for the Prevention of Violence Against Women, about how to have those sort of conversations and, and how to engage in that responsible reporting. That's Anastasia Powell, an Associate Professor in Criminology at RMIT. And if you are in an abusive situation or know someone who is, you can call 1-800-RESPECT. That's 1-800-737-732. The world has witnessed its fair share of dystopian imagery over the past few years. But clips on social media showing hordes of faceless security forces in China dressed head to toe in white hazmat suits, kicking and beating protesters with sticks, were another level. Xinjiang, Chengdu, Guangzhou, even Shanghai and Beijing. All over China, open, angry, at times violent dissent over the country's unending COVID lockdowns. In many places, it was more subtle, like those who held up pieces of blank paper for all the things they can't say. It's being described by some as the white paper or A4 revolution after demonstrators held sheets of blank paper. They're protesting against censorship and the movement has been building by the day. But there were also fierce and explicit demands for the Chinese president Xi Jinping! Xi Jinping! to step down. In modern day communist China, this just doesn't happen. And it was all the more extraordinary coming just six weeks after Xi Jinping cemented his power unchallenged at the party's National Congress. So what happens next? I think what made these protests different is that you saw people out on the streets, more or less in every corner of the country, on the same issue. 
China experts uh, are having trouble thinking of another event like this since the Tiananmen Square protests of 1989. That's Michael Schumann, a journalist who writes for The Atlantic. These protests didn't have nearly the numbers that you think you saw in 1989, but still, uh, you know, it, it's a sign of how widespread the frustration is, and it's an indication of, an, I think, an overall the very negative direction that the whole country is is taking, and that's that's what people feel, and that's why you had people out in the streets and they were yelling, you know, we want freedom. You know, they're talking specifically in in the context of the COVID controls that have been very strict, but you know, that's something that can very easily morph into wider calls for freedom in this very repressive environment. Well, they've put up with COVID controls for for nearly three years. So what's pushed them over the edge now? I think part of it is just the mounting frustration over that long period of time. When these policies were first put in place, the virus wasn't unknown. People were scared. No one knew what was going on. People were quite amenable to these, these policies, even though they were quite strict. But, you know, here we are three years later, and there's there's been tremendous economic and social costs. And, you know, people here are aware that the rest of the world has taken a, a different direction. The flashpoint for these protests was a fire at Urumqi in western China. Ten people died in a building where firefighters couldn't get in due to a lockdown. But after three long years of restrictions, people were clearly ready to vent their frustrations with COVID zero. As other countries open up, President Xi has doubled down on his policy and with low rates of vaccination for the vulnerable and potentially less effective vaccines, there's no easy way out, health-wise or politically. You're seeing the messaging from the government change that is signaling that they are heading towards some kind of uh, easing or, or loosening. This messaging has actually been coming for uh, several weeks now in, in mid-November the top leadership made an announcement of what they called optimizing zero COVID, in which they were trying to strip away some of the, the real excessive measures in it. But, you know, the, the, the messaging now from the government, from the state media is, hey, you, you know, the, these new variants like Omicron, they're not as dangerous as the virus used to be. So maybe we're entering into an, a new phase of our, of our fight with COVID. And that's, a, that's actually a significant change in tone from the government. It's an indication they may be preparing the public for some wider change. I think they're feeling their way at this stage. They realize they need to somehow somehow ease up and move on, but I'm not totally convinced they know exactly how to do that. And, and what of the, the sort of attempt to keep social media images, videos of protests out of the public sphere, you know, the, the censorship that China's infamous for doesn't appear to have happened uh, to, to such a large extent in these protests. They, they have been blocking information and images of the protests from social media. That's what happens here. You know, when you got 1.4 billion people on their, <laughs> smart, on their smartphones, things can go viral really quickly, you know, and, and honestly, sometimes the censors have trouble keeping up. Yeah, we saw some extraordinary scenes of protesters chanting Xi Jinping stand down and the like. Where do you think this whole right. episode leaves the Chinese president? And if the COVID controls don't go in any major way, where do you see this this whole kind of phenomenon heading? 
Well, you know, I think what was also interesting about the protests is that, yes, you mentioned in Shanghai, there were people chanting for Xi Jinping to step down. There were some people indicating protests against censorship and, and, and other issues beyond COVID. I think right now the protests are very much focused on the COVID restrictions, and that could change. But I think that's where we are right now. But I think the fact that people were willing to come out and even do that in this very repressive environment where they know they're at risk is a sign of, of just how frustrated and, and desperate some people here have, have become. Is it too much to suggest that President Xi's grip, his vice-like grip, is slipping at all? It's almost impossible to really know because, you know, in an environment here where you don't have free press, you don't have free speech, uh, you don't have any kind of polling, you know, how people feel about him, and, and honestly, even the zero COVID policy, is, is really almost impossible to, to judge. Though, because specifically the zero COVID policy has been so associated with him that if it fails or he has to back away from it, there is potential political damage to him from that. And But I think also it's it, there's something greater going on. The whole country right now is not really heading in a very good direction. This is a, a society that had become accustomed to very high rates of, of economic progress and increasing incomes and increasing connections to the world. And and now you're you're seeing that all kind of go in reverse. You've got slow growth, you have unemployment, you have uh, a more insular, more isolated country. And COVID is a big part of that. The, the COVID restrictions are actually part of a bigger picture of where China is headed and how a lot of people really don't like that direction and they don't think it's best, it's best for China. So I think that's where the ultimate danger for Xi Jinping really is, that zero COVID is part of a package of his policies that aren't necessarily taking China in the right direction. Michael Schumann is a journalist based in Beijing. He writes for The Atlantic. Well, ever since Labor won the election, the debate over a referendum on an Indigenous voice to Parliament has been fairly subdued and relatively one-sided too. But this week, when the Nationals leader David Littleproud announced his party would not support the constitutional amendment, things got personal quick. It is also this leader, this apparently supposed leader, Littleproud, little pride, a man of little pride. And he's like a kindergarten kid. Noel Pearson, who's advocated a voice since 2014, took aim at the Nationals' leader and CLP Senator Jacinta Numpajimba-Price, who sits with the Nationals, had a swing at Minister for Indigenous Australians, Linda Burney. Minister Burney might be able to take a private jet out into a remote community uh, dripping with Gucci and tell people in the dirt what's good for them, but they are in the dark. It was a sign that the road to constitutional change could get ugly and won't be easy. In fact, it's pretty clear there's still plenty of confusion out there about how a voice to parliament would actually work in practice and what it even is. It'll be a group of democratically elected Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people who would advise the government and the parliament of the day on how a policy like health or housing or laws like native title legislation would practically and culturally affect Aboriginal people. Lorena Allam is The Guardian's Indigenous Affairs Editor. 
For a long time now, advocates have argued that a voice like that should be enshrined in the constitution, so it can't be abolished by the government of the day. But governments could still change and amend how that operates because, as the Prime Minister Albanese said this week, it would be subservient to the parliament. So it would have an advisory role only. So an advisory body to the government, what what can it do and what can it not do? Well, what it can't do is um, it can't deliver services or manage government funding. It won't do research. It can't overrule the parliament. It provides advice only. If a parliament then decides to pass a law that the voice doesn't like, that is entirely parliament's prerogative. And, And so it isn't a third chamber to parliament, as people have said in the past. It's got a long history, doesn't it? I mean, we go all the way back to the Uluru Statement from the Heart. Yeah, that's right. So, and even before that, I think there were efforts at constitutional recognition of Indigenous people dating back to the Howard government. I think 2007, Howard promised that if he were re-elected, he'd hold a referendum to recognise Aboriginal people in the constitution. Of course, he lost to Kevin Rudd, who reiterated that he would do the same. Kevin Rudd handed it to Julia Gillard, and then it was continued under Tony Abbott. So out of all of that work, years and years of work, came the Uluru Statement of the Heart in 2017, where delegates from all over Australia met at Uluru to call for a voice to Parliament enshrined in the Constitution, and two other things, a Makarata Commission to oversee a process of treaty-making and truth-telling. So those three things, voice, treaty, truth. We'll get to some of the criticism in a minute, but, but first of all, what is the case for the voice? Well, the campaigners say it's long overdue for First Nations people to be, you know, recognised in what the Prime Minister has been calling our birth certificate, the constitution of the nation. I mean, Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people have been here for more than 60,000 years and there's no reference to us in that document. So that in itself is a long overdue change that needs to be made. And it's a way, a new way of doing business is how Dean Parkin from the, from the Heart campaign has described it sort of drawing a line under those poor outcomes that we, we hear so much about all the time, the closing the gap report at the table this week shows so many important targets aren't moving, some are going backwards. And so this is a way of, of Aboriginal people are saying, look, give us the opportunity to manage our own affairs and and let us get on with um, with it and, and let us do what we need to do for our people. Is it more likely if there is a voice to Parliament that there'll be more of a continuity of Indigenous policy and you won't see new governments come in and tear up what the previous government has in place? Yes, that is a possibility. There's always, given that the voice is is subservient to the Parliament, the possibility that governments will persist in tearing things up, as you say. But really it's an opportunity for Indigenous people to organise, to vote in leaders, to to, to bring up leadership from the ground up, uh, to bring young people in and train them up to be leaders. So there's a continuity of a voice, a continuity of representation that, that there just isn't at the moment. So the debate has been relatively quiet for a while, but it really exploded this week with the Federal <laughs> National Party announcing its opposition, its formal opposition to The Voice. Why are they against it? Well, they raised several concerns. Uh, On Monday, the leader, David Littleproud, said the Nationals really want to close the gap and they didn't think that The Voice would help do that. 
they said it would just be creating another layer of bureaucracy in Canberra and they didn't want any race-based division in the constitution either. It's important to say, though, that pretty soon after that announcement that was meant to be a unanimous front, other senior nationals around the country came forward and said they didn't really agree with that stance. The West Australian national leader, Mia Davies, said she was of the view that, that Australia could do both, close the gap and have a voice to parliament. And the nationals member for Calair, Andrew G, said he wasn't even at the meeting. He was visiting his flooded out constituents in Ugaura. And if, even if he was, he would he was still a supporter of the voice. There is opposition, though, from some Indigenous people, including within the Nationals Party. What are their concerns? Yes, so Jacinta Price, who's the CLP member for the Senator for the Northern Territory, said that she doesn't want the voice to succeed. She thinks that people are are being emotionally blackmailed into voting for something that won't demonstrably change the lives of Aboriginal people and that she speaks on behalf of people who don't want the voice and who don't think they need to be governed by this separate entity. Her comments were met with some pretty harsh criticism from some quarters, including Noel Pearson, who said she was doing the bidding of right-wing think tanks. And I think he said she was trapped in a tragic redneck celebrity vortex. (laughs) So, you know, it's an example of the kind of rhetoric we've seen this week that was uh, was a pretty incredible thing to to say. Mm, Yeah, no, it was was pretty pretty extreme stuff. Obviously, a referendum itself is still a long way off. But as we mentioned at the start, there's there's still a little bit of confusion about all of this. The federal government says it won't fund the yes or no campaign. But now that the, the sort of no campaign is off and running, how problematic is it that we haven't seen big campaigns on the yes side? Well, I think we'll see those campaigns kick off in the new year. I mean, the no campaign, as it was run this week by the Nationals, seemed like it kind of fell apart quite quickly and isn't a universal position. So I think there are some in the Uluru camp who are hopeful that that they couldn't be um, persuaded to change their mind. But in terms of campaigning, I think it will all start off in the new year. And, And then, to me, the problem will be the tone of that campaigning and how the country will be able to keep it civil and respectful and keep the uglier aspects of racism out of this conversation. So do you think it's problematic in any way that the government hasn't come out more strongly in sort of campaigning on the yes side? Well, the Prime Minister and Linda Burney, the Indigenous Affairs Minister, have both said that they want this to be a grassroots campaign. They want this to be something Australians talk about with each other, you know, at the school gate or at barbecues or at the kids' soccer games or or wherever we congregate. They want this to be a public movement and a conversation that Australians have. They don't want to be the ones to be seen to be driving the conversation. And so Anthony Albanese said he put the question, a proposed, a draft question and a form of words of how the constitution might be changed to the Australian people in his speech at the Gama Festival. And he said that's as much information as he's willing to to hand over. He, I, I think um, the government doesn't want to be seen to be driving the Yes campaign. They want this to be something that Australians discuss and come to a view on so that when we all walk into the booth towards the end of next year, we will feel like we have enough information to cast a vote. And 
do you think that's fraught at all, that, that strategy? I think it's risky. I mean, it's a long time between the Gama Festival in June and whenever the official campaigning kicks off, even if it's February, March next year. That's a long time in which the seeds of doubt could be sown into fertile mines, you know. So I think it has been a risk and they've been restrained when asked repeatedly for detail. They have said, go and look at this report. Read page 16 is, is what Albo said in Parliament this week. So there is a risk with that. That, that in the absence of information, misinformation can thrive. Um, but this is the process we're in now and we just have to see it through, I guess. That's Lorena Allam, The Guardian's Indigenous Affairs Editor. Well, that's this week's episode. Don't forget to subscribe to This Week if you liked what you heard. It's produced by Madeline Jenner, Nell Whitehead, Nick Grimm, Will Ockenden and me, David Lipson. 